Welcome to the Axial Spondylarthritis Podcast, hosted by me, Jason Sacco. I'm a longtime spondy looking to bring the community closer to give the community a voice. I'll be reaching out to organizations, doctors, nutritionists, and anyone that I think can help increase our spondy quality of life. Enjoy and learn what is available to make your life better. Hello and welcome to this week's episode of the Axial Spondyloarthritis Podcast. In this week's episode, we're going to take a look at a study that I found from January, at least the release date of it was January of 2023, and it talks about current aspects for the treatment of axial spondyloarthritis. Some of it's going to be information that we already are relatively familiar with or have heard before, but it's always good to see it presented and know that it is being looked at as they continue to modify and update treatment plans for those of us with this condition. But first, I wanted to post a video from Alexander Levine. Now, many of you know, just a couple months ago, I interviewed Alex, and he's a personal trainer that has axial spondyloarthritis. This particular video that I put a link to down below talks about his diagnosis. We talked about that in the episode where I interviewed him, but if you missed it, this video is kind of a neat introduction to his channel. He uh, has just hundreds of videos on YouTube and shorts, or reels, I guess they call them on, on YouTube, that cover different exercise topics for ankylosing spondylitis or axial spondyloarthritis, however the term you want to use, and ways for stretching. And his channel has all sorts of really good topics to be learning about. So check out the link down below in the show notes for Alex's video for this week. Now let's take a look at the study I was talking about. It came out in January of 2023 and it says current aspects for the treatment of axial spondyloarthritis. I'll have a link to this in the show notes and the author goes on to talk about how normally the treatment for axial spondyloarthritis is with non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs. Basically NSAIDs, they're going to treat you with those as long as they can until they don't help you anymore. Or at least that's been the general consensus. They start to talk about the importance though of physical therapy and the education around diet, movement, exercise, everything in relation to the treatment of axial spondyloarthritis. They also looked at some things in relation to the use of biologics. The author talks about in 2000. 12, how the results of a multiple logistic regression analysis showed that, compared with controls, patients who met the Global World Health Organization's recommendations for physical activity had lower disease activity, better physical function, and superior health-related quality of life. A recent comprehensive review summarized what is known about physical function and activity. On that basis, they recommend, the author says, to improve and maintain physical function as individual needed and increase physical activity on a regular basis. That's why I've been posting these videos from Alex and links to them and discussing them because Alex really helps to provide good things to do to start with physical activity, whether they be stretching all the way up to working out with weights. You have to decide what's best for you with your doctor and where you think you can physically start in there. But the worst thing you can do is to have zero physical activity. So again, use Alex's website as a basis for starting off. If you need help, need accountability, reach out to Alex, discuss with them if he can be of assistance for you. And if he can't, use the videos. Some activity is better than no activity. So they go on to talk about in the article, the author says, apart from non-pharmacological therapies mentioned above, prescribing NSAIDs to reduce pain and the burden of inflammation is an important first step in the management of axial spondyloarthritis. They go on to say though that nevertheless, the efficacy and safety of NSAIDs has to be taken into account. There is issues that NSAIDs can cause, can be your liver, 
can be your kidneys. So work with your doctors as they tell you what they are really concerned about or what they want you to really focus on. And then if the NSAIDs or when, better yet, is when the NSAIDs quit working, do we look at biologic treatments? Are you in a position that biologic treatments make sense? They also go on to talk about, before looking at biologics, that the use of NSAIDs, as we may know, is, so as they look at biologics, it was shown in one long-term study of patients with active AS, the efficacy and safety of anti-tumor necrosis factor, anti-TNF therapy, was followed up for eight years. Patients were treated with infleximab, five milligram every six weeks, and almost 50% remained in the study over that eight-year period. In the patients still being treated, they were found to be efficacious and safe for over the eight years. That's good. That meant that pretty much most of the patients that were using the drug had no problems with it over that eight-year period that they studied it. Furthermore, the short-term response was predictive of long-term outcome. However, there is some evidence that there are differences in the treatment responses to biologics between males and females. And I talked about this in an earlier episode, and that in one study, the authors reported that fewer women responded to the TNF inhibitors in comparison to men, and that women had a lower magnitude of response in comparison with men. Nonetheless, they go on to say, it cannot be excluded that these results could be due to either a diagnostic error or that many of the women had a co-issue of fibromyalgia, which may have led to a negative result with that. So it doesn't mean necessarily that the anti-TNF wasn't working. It just may mean that the fibro overrode some of the benefits of the anti-TNF that women were, you know, trying to experience or hoping to experience. So they've also, you know, obviously know that fibro shows up more in women than it does men. So again, all of these could be factors in the efficacy of the anti-TNF. Also, lastly, and this is where the exercise can come into play, obese patients may also have lower responses to TNF. And that was not across men or women. That was across both sexes. TNF having less of an effect with obese patients was not related to one gender. It could be across either of the two. So it's one that the obesity can affect both. So whether anti-TNF agents need to be given continuously, that remains a big question. One of the studies that was done showed that when they discontinued the anti-TNF after a patient had gone into a long-term remission, they tended to bounce right back into a flare and the benefits that were received from taking the medication disappeared. But several studies were done that showed that just a reduction in the amount of the drug taken did not, after the flares were gotten under control, after the everything was gotten under control, that a reduction of the amount of drug taken did not seem to trigger the patients to lapse into a flare. So that's very interesting. It could be that either the amount of the drug or the intervals between administration of the drug could be lessened. We all know that with these high costs of these drugs, that the insurance companies both in the country as well as countries that offer health care for their citizens, the cost of these drugs are in some cases very prohibitive. So the ability to reduce the amount taken could be a huge benefit if it's a function of getting everything under control, reducing the drug, and then keeping on a, that keeps you in your system but doesn't overdo it too much. So that's something that's very interesting and could be of great benefit to much more people in the future. It was also shown that for many, if the anti-TNFs were discontinued, that once they were put back on them, it brought the flares under control, brought the inflammation under control for 
for most and provided the needed benefit that was. So cutting off of them doesn't necessarily mean you'll develop antibodies and not take them, be able to take them. It can, and you might have to look for another medication. But again, it seems that maybe the lowering of the dose could provide much needed benefit. But nevertheless, the author goes on to state, in order to investigate the safety and efficacy of the TNF in patients with non-radiographic axial arthritis, a randomized placebo-controlled trial was carried out. In this case, with patients that were randomized for the treatment with the placebo or the Humira, the results showed that the latter was efficacy, especially in the patients with the objective signs of active disease, you know, as documented by positive magnetic resonance imaging or MRIs. So whether the Humira can be withdrawn in patients with non-radiographic after reaching sustained remission was also studied, and this was done at 107 sites in 20 countries. In this study, after having reached remission on adalim, for example, an AS disease activity score of inactive disease, you know, which is less than 1.3 on the scale, patients were included to be randomly assigned to the Humira or to the placebo for 40 weeks. The results indicated that more patients on placebo than on the continuous Humira experienced a flare. So it's seeming that like those with full-blown AS, those that are in the non-radiographic stage, by coming off of it, the body again, which makes sense, would jump into a flare, whereby keeping a lower dose, it seemed to help to keep everything under control. These recent success also, as I mentioned earlier, women were at times less responsive to anti-TNF. With the success of the agents targeting IL-17s and JAK inhibitors, they're beyond the scope of this. They found that some of those may be more advantageous to women. There's going to be much, much more on that, hopefully studied and, and looked at. Hopefully, we can come up to a situation where a treatment plan for this is looked at at the patient level to designate which one can lead to better benefits. Because again, what we're trying to do is not only preserve the quality of life that we have, but hopefully increase it, maybe not to what we were pre the start of the condition, but at least to a position where we're not getting worse. And by better being able to identify biologics and which ones will help who generally the better, it can get that treatment plan started faster and then lead to a much better quality of life. That's what we're trying to do. So with that, I wish everyone a great week. Please go and check out Alex's YouTube channel. The videos are fantastic. And then also you can reach it through the show notes. You can also reach the link to this article in the show notes. If you should have any questions, please don't hesitate to reach out and I hope you all have a wonderful week.